Now I'd like to welcome Mr. Jim Hurley, he, uh, a Cork man living in Dublin. He has written uh, three books on the RIC and two on the Dublin Metropolitan Police. Uh, his three on the RIC include a history of the force, um, a full list of all RIC members from the beginning, and a biographical dictionary of those members. So. I'm going to hand over now to Jim. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and a guest, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you can all hear me. Um, uh, George Bernard Shaw said the danger of tracing your ancestors is that you might find one hanging from a branch, either by his neck or by his tail. <laughs> now, and the question is, you can't choose who your ancestors were, and the question is, would they have chosen you? Um, Genealogy, I'm interested in the genealogy side of it. No axe to grind, who did what, or anything with the independence. I'm very anxious to see those who died as a result of political violence, or the ordinary men who died, that they would be remembered. And we have a new organisation just started by two ex-members of the Garrett Corner, who I've no doubt will fulfil the role before we have uh, the centenary of 1922. And I'm delighted to hear that. I'd be my, what I want to try and get across is how I got interested in the RIC, uh, the personalities that were in the RIC, a brief potted history, and I hope to end on some very unusual personalities. You'd be supplied, surprised who has connections with the RIC. And as late as yesterday, I had a phone call from the wife of the Chief Justice of the United States, the, the man who sworn in Obama. His great, or her great grandfather, was a William Carroll. I just got his record yesterday, uh, from Tipperary North Riding, born in 1846. That'll tell you just. How many are out there? Just take it, 85,028 people passed through the RIC between 1816 and 1922. Each of them had to have two parents. That's a quarter of a million people with descendants. And believe me, RIC men didn't have small families. And one example I can give you, if, if they hadn't sons in the RIC, they all mixed in the same grouping. Daughters married RIC men, even if the sons didn't marry. One example was last week, I went up to Castlereagh, County Roscommon in Ballinlock tracing an RIC when they were stationed above there. The family in New York just thought there was only just uh, one member of the family emigrated to the States. I found 13 in the family. Seven of the godfathers of the children were RIC men. And you were able to trace those coming through the record, stationed above there and moving on again. That's just only a typical example. But my interest begins with my father. <laughs> my father was 75 when I was born. And he was 79 when my brother was born. I just hope it's hereditary. <laughs> and my father emigrated to Boston in 1898 with five sisters and a brother. Their aunt married the mayor of Boston at the time, James Michael Curley. I know of 112 cousins in the state of Massachusetts. Incidentally, they all got jobs. I just wonder why things haven't changed. Um, my father, this is my father taken 1915. He came back in 1915 and joined the British Army. And... Believe it or not, I got a photograph in the Cork Examiner when I was looking up some other research. And he was in the Royal Field Artillery and the cap badge, he left me his papers, cap badge, and a box full of some of these mementos. He was a tailor by occupation. His biggest claim to fame in the States was he sewed the buttons in the waistcoat of the then president, William Howard Taft. And Taft was so big and his waistcoat was so big that his brother also claimed the same fame. And in order two of them could say they did it, they picked every second button. Now, <laughs> Taft was so big, someone told me recently, that when he got up, two women sat down. <laughs> this is my father's discharge papers, and uh, years ago when I started research first, it was just by communication letters and talking to people, but now the internet has really opened up things. I've got the card index for his medals, only I have had it a while, but the other day, my father's invalided back to France. I always thought to live back to Liverpool, but it's now Newcastle. He had this wound badge, or that they wore, uh, they could wear in the uniform afterwards, and the number on that, you can trace it online. Uh, these are his three old, uh, three First World War medals. Now, my interest in medals stems also, it's a great way of tracing auxiliaries and black and tans, because by their medal bars, even though you can't see them in colour, um, you can see the lining that, that's on them, but especially bravery medals. Some bravery medals were allocated to non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers. And if you take the black and tans, the black and tans were ex-non-commissioned officers. The auxiliaries were ex-commissioned officers. But they became commissioned officers because they rose through the ranks. And they have a combination of medals that were issued to both non-commissioned and, and commissioned, like the military medal and the military cross. If they have a combination, you know that they came from the ranks. 
Uh, and these are some just little momentous from the First World War. The wound stripe there on the left-hand side, if you went back into uniform after being wounded, you could wear that on your uniform, your stripes. It just shows how many times you were wounded. The little silver badge which can be traced is a badge they wore uh, because the women at the time, uh, if a fellow was called a cord, you just wave white feathers at them. And if you wore one of these badges, you were considered okay. That's the one on the right is a bit more of a fancier badge, but not numbered. And again, this is a penny made in the trenches, 1914 penny. Another penny wrapped around it, what they call trench art. And it's a pea cap made out of when they were idling the trenches. Uh, my father was a tailor in Carragadrohid in County Cork. And my first introduction to the RIC was in 1961, when my father brought me back to Carragadrohid. He was a tailor there during the Troubles, as his father and his brother. And he was making uniforms for the RIC. And he showed me he wouldn't have been suspect being in the station. And they were actually making a hole in the wall for the RIC to get out, knowing that uh, an attack was imminent. Now, the lady who was in the station at the time has only died in the last five years. I have her on tape describing in great de detail. And she gave me a list of RIC men that were in there at the time. So I set about trying to find out who was in the station. And to find those five, I probably had to go through 500. And then eventually I went over to public records in queue and got an idea where the records were. And that developed into a book. Um, and then I tried to honour those who were killed on duty and those who went off to the First World War and all these specialists started occurring. Then I got such a volume of correspondence of people saying to me, you haven't got my guy in the RIC. There was only 2,000 names in the back of this. There was 85,000 in the RIC. So, and there were 834 Murphys. Now, if you're doing a family tree, the, the RIC can be an, a huge asset because civil registration begins in this country on the 1st of January 1864. The RIC service records go back to 1816, which means that you can put a person in a time frame, you can say who recommended them, and that person usually would have to be known to him. Um, this is one of the per another person my father made uniforms for. He's the man who shot Sheehy Skeffington in 1916 and lived in Carrigadrohid. And I've tracked him down, and believe it or not, this, that family still owns the castle. His daughter is living in Washington at the moment, and she came back. And the county council boarded up the place straight away on account of public liability. Someone outside the place owns it. Uh, that's him in retirement. I've got a huge album of photographs of him in retirement. He took off. He, was, he killed Sheehy Skeffington. He was uh, jailed in Dartmoor. He got a pardon, and he got some like 90,000 acres in Canada. Uh, he's, he was fluent in seven languages. He met his wife in Japan, travelled all over the world. And uh, just... This is another man I met, uh, Lieutenant General Schrader and Captain Dewart VC, my father. He won the Victoria Cross in World War I. And um, his stepson only died in the last year, the horse trainer, uh, Fergie Sutherland. Um, and he, he was wounded 15 times. He had 15 of these little stripes. My father said it was the best job he ever got, he said, because it was only half the material for twice the money. <laughs> and we visited him at the time in, when I was seven, and my father wanted to go in the the tradesman's entrance into the house, and Lady Duarte came out to us in the driver. He lived in the Heenan County Cock, just outside Carragadrohid, retired there. And uh, my father went to go into the tradesman's entrance, and Lady Duarte said those days are long gone. It was my father's first day, 40 years on, going in the front door of the house. And we had high tea inside. My father was up speaking to the general. I got to shake hands with him. Uh, an amazing, amazing kind. He'd written a fantastic book, which has recently been published, called A Happy Odyssey. It's an incredible story. He's one of Churchill's generals, uh, in World War II. He was in uh, the Boer War, World War I and World War II. And uh, he had 21 decorations altogether. This is him on the right-hand side there after losing an arm and an eye. And uh, with Churchill, Chiang Kai-shek, talking about heavy hitters. And I was on the radio talking about him uh, on Joe Duffy there one day. And the day I was talking about it, lady, that's the day Lady Dewart died. She was 104 years of age. Uh, a woman said, I nearly crashed my car. That time Joe Duffy was finished a quarter of the tree, and she, she, I, she rang me straight away when it ended, and she says, I'm at Lady Dwarf's funeral. She, just coincidences. Now, this is the RAC station my father helped the RAC escape out of, and it's in Carrigadrohid. Um, there's a list of architectural buildings around the country, and it names the RAC station. In fact, it names the building next door if you go looking at it. Um, but that's the RAC station in... in in 1920, he was attacked. This is a man who got the Constabulary Medal for defending the station, even though they got out the back door. The Daily Mirror has an account of it. 
the, the fiddler that beats Sinn Féin is on it because there's one guy playing the fiddle inside knowing about getting out the back door. Um, I, I joined the Galshikon in 1977 and I retired earlier this year. And I came to Blarney and by coincidence, Blarney Station was also attacked in, in June of 1920, the same time as Carrigadrohid. And I tried to find out who the last sergeant was. Eventually got a photograph of him and eventually tracked down his daughter, brought her out to the station, walked her through the station, taped her, and they used that in Michael Collins from the window shakes to Barley to do out the inside the station, what they looked like in 1920. Um, when the station was attacked in 1920, um, this is the IRA man who attacked the Frank Busteed. Um, I met his family, and in 1965, he appeared back at the station, met a detective there, and he said, you know, your clock was stolen in 1920, when it was the RIC station. He said, I know where it is. So he, two days later, he went to wave a detective, they had a few points, and back the clock arrived under his arm, and it was hanging in the station up to recently, until the station caught fire again, so it has survived literally two attacks. Uh, in his house, he had it hidden. I spoke to his family. Two daughters and a son were living in Scotland. They never knew where it was at all. The same man stole a Rolls Royce, the ghost car, and it was used in drive-by shootings by the IRA, bright yellow. That has been restored, and the two of us here, uh, John Sheehan, a friend of mine, we were in that car only up to recently. It was restored, put into a bog. It was actually used in 1923 when they fired at British Army down in Cove. And it's been the same as the, it's it's been done up. It's absolutely immaculate altogether, and it had the, the big, huge gun on the back of it, the drive-by shooting. Um, this is uh, when I was looking for information and further. I seemed trying to get some stories. I got a phone call from this lady. She says, "I have a live one for you." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "My grandfather was in the RAC, and he's living out in Killester." So I went up and I spoke to him, and um, I was expecting to see a guy in oxygen, 99 years of age. He came out in his pinstripe suit, his RIC cane. The family deserted the house, and they said, thanks be to God, someone's listening to a story. He was stationed at Drum in Wicklow, and two and a half hours later, I ran out of tape talking to him. But I learned two very distinct things about him, which was great help in tracing your ancestors afterwards. You had to be 19 to join, and are five foot nine. But if your father was in it, you got a year off the age, an inch off the height. And he says, I know, he says, I got in on the boat counts. Now, he, and it being a family affair, he had three brothers in it, his father was in it, and his father-in-law was in it. He had Dan Breen's description of, as a blacksmith, off by heart even to that day. Very well read, showed me all the books he read and everything. And uh, I got a great insight on as many regulations, internal regulations as the RIC made about their members. They found a way around it. There was always a way around it. Even fellas getting married and moving to England, not reporting the marriage. There's ways. You couldn't be stationed in your home county or your wife's county. Worse still, you had to have seven years' service before you could get married. But you had to, I've only found out recently, you had to declare your intention after five years. So she, she was what, what they call in the RIC a lady in waiting for two years. <laughs> so um, he walked into Michael Collins' film, we got to describe the station, this type of thing. And the first thing he says to me um, when the arts people were looking to do up the station down, and uh, we went up, he was gone on holidays down in Athlone, we had to go down looking for him. And he said, Where are the guns going to be? And I said, they're going to be inside the door. He said, we weren't that stupid, he said. They had a gun in every room that they'd retreat into a room. They were armed no matter what happened, no matter who came into the station. Um, this is the, a man who keeps following me around the place, um, Tobias O'Sullivan. Um, he was uh, wounded in Kilmallock, uh, bullet ricocheted off his notebook. He was promoted, made a district inspector, and he, he was in Listowel walking along the street with his young child, and he was riddled to death. Um, I, I eventually, and one of those kids is in that photograph. One of those kids ended up in um, in Texas, and there were papers in Trinity College uh, by an, a son of an RIC man who was doing a history of it at the time. Letters from him, and he said, "Let, let Ireland sort out her own problems. He didn't want to hear any more." But of my cousins that went to state, one of my uh, one of my first cousins in the state was married to a Sullivan. And any time the Yanks came home in the 60s, they photographed us. I knew they were coming because we get coffee, we get ham, and you get, and you get brill cream and a haircut. And, and they'd open up the packages of the clothes that we got from America, and they'd photograph us. And all those photographs end up in America. But the Sullivans, who came home from Boston, were going up to Cornamona afterwards, and they were always talking about the film The Quiet Man. Asher, you know, the Sullivans above there, they owned 
the bishop's car that you see in the very end of it. Uh, and it's, believe it or not, it's still in the garage up there in, in the place. So, but one of that family is Tobias the Sullivan, and he had three brothers in the RIC. And so those Sullivans are indirectly related to me. Now, when I was writing the officer's book, I was trying to track down every officer, and I found the grave, and I just put a flower on it on the left-hand side. And to my astonishment, I came back a year later, someone had arrived and had done it up. I also have on film uh, his funeral with the auxiliaries doing a guard of honour, and three of his brothers coming back from the colonies, all police officers. And it's near where the quiet man is, and the I actually stepped, believe it or not, in Maureen O'Hara's bed. <laughs> but it was about 50 years on. Uh, one of my cousins on the Maureen O'Hara said, owns the house uh, Churchtown, in Churchtown Road where Maureen O'Hara lived, and they're connected. So the, 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 the story, the Sullivan and O'Sullivan, but it keeps on haunting me anyway. Now, just getting into the history of the RIC, briefly, you had the baronial constabulary from 1787 up to 1882. I'll, go, I'll explain in greater detail, but just, just an overview. Then you had the Peace Preservation Force from 1814. It overlapped in some parts of the country up, up to 1836, but not utilised as such. Um, the, and the Irish constabulary from 1836 up to 1867, it was, it was the Irish constabulary. Then it got the royal uh, prefix... Uh, from 1867 for suppressing the Fenian Rising. And you had a, before that, you had a county constabulary uh, from 1822 to 36. Now, just other police forces. Um, the, the Royal Irish Constabulary were for the 32 counties of Ireland, with, with the exception of Dublin, and the Dublin Police Force uh, was unarmed. There was 12,556 DMP men passed through the system between 1836 and 1925. And unlike uh, the RIC being disbanded in 1922, they continued until 1925. And the Dublin Metropolitan Police became the division, the DMD, Dublin Metropolitan Division, of the Garda Shikhan in 1925. Uh, you had the old Dublin Police from 1786 to uh, 1836, then the DMP. You had the Irish Revenue Police. Uh, they were known as the Pochin Hussars. Over 2,000 policemen chasing Pochin makers. And they were there from 1832 up to 1857. And in the last few years, I found their headquarters and their training depot in Dublin. And you won't believe where it is. It's the red building in the, bishop, in the bishop's palace. <laughs> and uh, we actually checked it against the, the census and the buildings. Uh, and down to dimensions, the ceilings have been dropped down. But um, they're a very interesting bunch. Uh, now, the, the reason how they, they came about was that there was... Uh, a, a loss of revenue, obviously, and every um, parish priest and vicar in the country was sent a letter, uh, have you a problem with pochine making in the country? All those west of the Shannon said yes, and they ended up with revenue police stations, and they had raiding parties for the rest of the country. Um, they were amalgamated with the Irish Constabulary in 1857, and I have a complete list of who transferred over, but from a genealogical point of view, you have two dates of joining. You have the date to join the Revenue Police and the date to transfer over. So it's another way of indirectly finding your way into Revenue Police by those ones who transferred over on the 1st of October, 1857. Uh, in Dublin, you had the Belfast City Police. They were amalgamated with the RIC in 1865. You had the Derry City Police, called the Bang Beggars or the Horny Dicks. I don't know why they got their name, but they were there from 1832 to 1870, and the RIC took over their role again. Now, you're the first version of Black and Tans, and it is the blueprint for the Black and Tans, I'm absolutely convinced, called the Royal Irish Constabulary Auxiliary Force. They did the RIC AF, unlike the RIC afterwards, the Auxis, the ADRIC. And they were, they were made up uh, when they came under uh, severe pressure during the land wars. They needed trained, uh, those used in our ex military men, trained in the use of firearms to relieve the ordinary RIC, and that was their function, and they were in police huts, and the RIC went about their business. That was the intention also in 1920, but the, that the auxiliaries were to be the officer corps of the Black and Tans, but it didn't work out that way because the intelligence that they got completely dried up due to the pressure of the IRA. Uh, you had railway police, in, and you had Irish Harbour police. Michael Collins had his own police force called the Oriel House Detectives, and they operated out of Oriel House. Um, and uh, they were uh, disbanded, and some of them end up in the ordinary detective branch, are in detective branch of the guards in 1925. Um, when the treaty was signed, they needed to protect the members of Dáil Éireann, and then, of course, when the split came, you would, 
half of Michael Collins' men looking after De Valera's men. That's the strange irony in it. And they came under fire. Some of them were killed on duty. In fact, the first public hanging in the Irish Free State as a result of uh, two Oriel Housemen being killed. Um, the Cork City Police, or Cork Civic Patrol, uh, that was formed in August 22 because the Free State troops hadn't got to Cork. Still was, Cork was still being held by the irregulars. So the, the business interests of Cork got together. Again, they got ex-army people just wrecking the traffic. And if you notice Michael Collins' funeral, look at the footage the next time. There are no guards in Cork. They didn't arrive there until November. But you get those standing at the side, throwing two photographs with CCP, Cox Civic Patrol or CCP. They're, they're the police in Cork at the time. So a few of them end up in the Garda Shikana. The man who was in charge of them at the time ends up as the chief superintendent in the guards. And then you had the civic guards, as they were called first, uh, meeting at the Gresham Hotel. And the founding committee was made up, half made up of ex-RIC officers. Now, only 180 RIC men transferred to the guards. And the reason being is that the RIC, if you were 12-year service at the time, you got 10 years onto your service, so you had a pension of 22-year service. And your pay brought you above, above the guard of pay. But what they did with most of them, they brought them in as specialists and trainers, and they promoted them to the rank of sergeant. Now, another term was that if, when you got a pension from the RIC on disbandment, and if you left the country and joined another police force, your pension was suspended. But at the end of that service, you ended up with two pensions. Uh, then the Civic Guards restyled the Royal Ulster, uh, the Garda Shikon in 1923, and um, the, you, then you have Royal Ulster Constabulary founded on the 1st of June 1922, which becomes the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Now, just on the Baronial Constabulary, of no <coughs> consequence whatsoever, um, you'll only get them in, in lists, but there, there's nothing really there about them. All, the only, all you know about them is that they were all Protestants. Um, and that's a mock-up done for the 150th anniversary of what they would look like. The, no detection of crime it didn't seem to figure in their thing and all just get paid and turn up. Uh, the Peace Preservation Force uh, was brought in. It was compiled main, mainly of between the period about 1812 and 18, up to 1814. Ex-Dublin police magistrates were sent down the country to see where the trouble spots were. And the Barony Middle Third and Tipperary seems to be the worst place. And they were to get the feeling on the ground. And then, when the Peace Preservation Force, mainly cavalry sergeants, were sent into an area, they identified the problem inside there. The danger with them is that they wiped out more than the problem. A lot of innocent people got caught up. They had no, uh, what do we call now, a local knowledge of the area. The area was proclaimed. The locals had to pay for them. And uh, the arms and equipment were applied by the government. But it was in the locals' interest to get them out because it was costing them while they were there. Um, <coughs> Sir Richard Wilcox is one of those. He's buried outside in uh, Chapel, is it? I, his great-grandson, by coincidence, is um, an expert on peace and reconciliation. He's written several books. The Dalai Lama has, and Mother Teresa have actually um, done the forewords to some of his books, but it's just a huge coincidence. And this uh, photograph he gave me of him, he has lots of correspondence with Robert Peel. I think some of it is there. Um, that's where he's buried outside, and I found his grave out. In, um, uh, the... When the RIC was, this is another one of um, presented, uh, a silver snuffbox presented to him. This ended up in the Phoenix Park Depot, and every officer of the equivalent modern-day superintendent upwards, district inspector, sub-inspector, chief constable in the early state were called, would have taken snuff out of that from uh, 1822, or 1842 when the depot opened up to 1922. Um, and you'll find a lot of those early... Peace Preservation Force officers are all buried out in Mount Jerome. I found one row of them, all buried one after the other, um, and fairly substantial monuments. Uh, the county constabulary in 1822, when that was set up, the country was divided into four different regions and four separate training depots. And you had in Munster, Richard Wilcox, uh, Thomas Darcy in Ulster, uh, Thomas Powell, in, in uh, Leinster, and then you had Major Warburton in uh, Connacht. And then you had four different train depots. The train depot in Cork was in Ballancolic. Um, and the ranks that, at that time were uh, super, rank of superintendent, which became a sub-inspector in 1828, chief constable, head constable, and sub-constables. Now, the difficulty with that is that you had four distinct police forces with four separate types of training, four different types of uniform, 
and everything ended on their border and there was nothing organised for the, the country and Dublin Castle wanted to run everything uniformly. This is what the officers would have looked something like at the time from Watercolour. Uh, this is Louis Anderson, one of those. The, the very early officers were ex-military, uh, ex-British Army, uh, Peninsula War officers because they, they knew the training, they had been, you didn't have to retrain them in the use of firearms or anything like that. Um, and, and this is what the ordinary constables would have been. Imagine him with a breathalyzer or anything like that. But, um, and that's, it's a very rare uh, description of them. Uh, Tog, Samson Togwood Roach, the man who did those little miniatures, was deaf. And we got that only recently in Northern Ireland, but it, it's a fabulous uh, description of them. It's one of the very rare ones. Uh, just some of the correspondence I mentioned a while ago about Sir Richard Wilcox. Uh, there are some two um, Daniel O'Connell writing to Sir Richard Wilcox when he was in Munster trying to get the Paris priest, never went to the police at the time, so things really haven't changed that much. Because he, he sends a second letter saying, how he gets this guy in, could you get the second guy in? So, um, This is one of the officers, I was in the Garda Museum there one day when somebody arrived in with a painting, just left to the museum, and I found it in buried outside, in the, again in Mount Jerome. Uh, Sir John Harvey, um, he ended up as a, a governor in Canada, and... Um, he was responsible for the founding of a, the, a new, what we call the Terra Nova Constabulary Force, which becomes the Newfoundland Constabulary, or the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. So now, but just shows the Irish influence. Uh, Timothy Mitchell from, was brought over from, uh, from Galway. And you can see there the buttons of them, Terra Nova on the right-hand side, very similar to the, that's the badge that was put over stations in 1836. And this is what their uniform looks like today. If you had five-year service, if you look down to the end, Blianta Shervisha, five. Twenty. Uh, they came over to us uh, and we got them to, for their anniversary, uh, to parade above, and they wrote uh, music, company music, to parade on the square above. An extraordinary event altogether. Their band at the moment, playing Irish music, their accents, you'd think you were from Waterford. Mm -hmm. And they played Irish music. Uh, definitely the edition of a concert here. Uh, Shea Khan, I believe it or not, is the name of the band. And they were in the mess above there the whole night, and everybody coming in thought it was just only locals took no notice of it all. Um, this is it's not Charlie High, by the way, in another life, but it's, as I said, the numbers go from 1 up to 85,000, 80, 85,000, uh, 83,000, but there's 1,700 of those are officers. And... Um, this is one of the, it's a later photograph of a person who was granted number 161. Now, anybody who's looked at the records will see that the very early records, the Red Book delighted, um, has the full 85,000 names in it. But what you see is the numbers jump at the very start up in, in chunks, and then they go, after 1836, they go, they go slow. What actually happened was, they said in 1836, when it, for the first time it becomes the Irish Constabulary, a national police force. Who have we now? So those who've left, they go back to the earliest fellow to try and give him number one. And, so, and that's, that's how you have it. But you get their service in it from the time that they did join in 1816. But those who would have died before 1836, you will not get. Now, some people have followed those, and eventually they've got great records because they've eventually picked them up in pensions and things. And they come in and they say, why isn't he in the Red Book? Because... He was gone, guaranteed he was gone before 1836, but you will find him in pensions. Um, that's the constabulary badge that was put up. If, as you see, most of the stations around the country, about 1,600 in all, they were whitewashed, and this badge was put up with the shamrock in the centre, with the garter around the side, with just constabulary on it. And it has the Victorian crown, which is the, the flat crown. Uh, the, the way of joining before October 18, if you find, you will not find a person... You'll find a person wearing three stripes in the RAC before October 1882, but you will not find him as a sergeant. And in the records, you'll need to find him as a constable, because the way of joining before 1882 was you joined as a sub-constable, second class. Now, if you kept your head down and your mouth shut for a year, you'll see that he becomes first class after a year. Then the next rank up was uh, an acting constable, and he wore two chevrons on his lower sleeve here. And a constable then wears three stripes. Uh, then you have head constables, first and second class. Then sub-inspector, the equivalent of modern-day superintendent. The county inspector, assistant inspector general, deputy, and 
Inspector Generals, the higher officers there, Assistant Inspector General and upwards, were all based in, in Dublin. Now, after 1880, October 1882, you'll find you had to join as a constable. Then the next rank was acting sergeant, sergeant. There's only one rank of head constable, and the sub-inspector becomes a district inspector. Um, now, the man responsible for organising the police and setting up the first police step was Thomas Drummond, uh, the undersecretary, and he's buried also in Mount Jerome. Um, and I said the general officers commanding the force at the time were ex-army um, officers. Uh, he was very lucky. The, the famous Trent, he was in a shipwreck and went down. He threw a bottle into the water. Eventually, he, uh, he was saved, and he, the bottle was handed back to him some years ago. He just buried in Mount Jerome next to the chapel up against the wall. And there was another officer I was looking for for years, and he's actually buried with him. He made his funeral arrangements. He had no other relatives in the country, and he's actually buried inside there with him, Colonel Roberts. Um, J.B. Priestley, the writer, is connected. Again, buried in Mount Jerome. This is a an ancestor of his, Thomas Priestley, and he's buried in the same row as the other peace preservation for us. That's his headstone there. Um, now, the, after 1842, the, when the depot was formed, it was the only cadet tra police force, trained cadet police force in the world. So they picked up all the top jobs as chief constables all over the place. But even before that, Anthony Thomas Defroy, whose uncle did line with Jane Austen, um, uh, chief constable, he, he was the first appointed chief constable in the county constabulary in England, which was started in 1838. Um, then... The RAC had a list brought out every six months by annual list. It shows the packing order of the RAC. It begins in 1840, uh, 1841, 1840, and it goes up to uh, 1921, July 1921. Now, for the higher ranks, it shows where all the sub-inspectors are all based, when they, all the different moves that they made through the ranks. Uh, then after that, you have the sergeant in charge of every station is in it. Uh, those who um, were, had medals during the war. It's a great way to track a person above the rank of sergeant and to accommodations at courts and things like that. That's all mentioned in it. But it's a great way to find out. You can trace an officer, no problem from that time. Um, the man responsible for putting it together was uh, John Monsell, born <coughs> in 1802, and he died in 1879. He knew everyone who passed through the RAC up to 1879, and his son, a sub inspector, took it over afterwards. Um, just what's on the service record, to answer the other gentleman's question there, but ago, what has survived? Uh, on every RAC man, there was a full file. And for, uh, there's only four, four of those sample files have survived, and they're in the public records office in queue. And you would cry if you had someone in the RAC and the little pieces you got and what you could have got. There's a physical description of the person, sketch of the person. There's all the forms that went with him when he joined. There's certificates of baptism before 1864. There's a marriage a certificate, a baptism or birth certificates of the children, and all the, all the promotions. His arithmetic test, all those tools, and the results of all those, they're all in it, and only four have four sample files. What happened was, when the RIC were disbanded in 1922, the full files were all taken, to, were left in Dublin Castle, taken to the London office. A person's done a thesis on it, and by 1939, they were only interested at that stage in holding on to who went on pension. And the deal in the treaty was that those serving at the time of disbandment were given uh, British pensions by the Paymaster General of England. But those in Ireland who could prove afterwards to the Irish government that they supported the cause in some way qualified for pensions. And um, so they were stripping out as they were as the RSM were all dying off, but they took off, they took out all the other information just when they kept the basic thing in it. All, all, they were all intact up to 1939 in Ealing, where the studio is, and pulped after that. So that's, it's, and it's, absolute, it's an absolute shame what, what is gone. Um, but just what's on the service record is the register as such. And in the register, you get the registered number. Now, the beauty about doing a family tree is that you can stick a number on your guy and I'm putting the whole lot in the database at the moment, but what I never bargained for was, when I put him on the database and see number 32657, what applied to him in the Phoenix Park Depot applied to, say, probably 100 more to pass through at the same time. If he's in a class, you have everybody else got in a class. 
and nowadays with digital you can just pull them out. People say to me, my grandfather's in the RIC but he's retired. He's still the same person. It's the same face. But you stick his number on him and he lines up with all those in, in the same class. Now he'd have had the same instructors and he'd have gone through the same regime at the time. So in blocks you can get... I have 10,000 photographs got from relatives over the last 20 years. And a lot of that was followed by asking the question, uh, have you got a photograph? Oh yeah, he, it's only his wedding photograph. The same person. It doesn't matter what age it's in, but it's the same. Now, the service record's only as good as the information of what happened to him in the service. I'm anxious to know that I can finish my inquiries with him, say, where is he now? Where is he buried? And you'll find out other stories of people, oh, there's a photograph somewhere else. It eventually comes in, and now on, I'm putting on the records like that, and at the very end of it, I'm tagging the name and address of a descendant. And I can say to you, that there's somebody else out there is looking for him. It mightn't happen today, but it's, it's happening on, the more I put on, the more on a regular basis, that people are tracing the same people. And again, they have a unique sequential number, which makes a difference to everything else. And then you can say uh, where other records. Now, um, the, there's Christian name, surname is on the service. This is on the register now that has survived. Uh, the original is in queue. There's a copy in the Garda Museum in the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland and the National Archives have it here on Bishop Street. Uh, the age when he was appointed, and I mentioned, if he was 18, there's a great chance it's more than likely his father was in it. Or if, he, if his height is only 5 foot 8, or else he ended up um, in the mounted section, uh, the shorter guys, because that's the way they distributed the post in the RIC. Uh, the post was, was sent out to, by a dispatcher he, uh, it was signed off, I see some of the documents that they had, it was signed off, uh, and they had to qualify to say that they did read it at the time. And that's how the correspondence was all got. And they used the, the shorter guys, obviously, in the house to do it. Um, you had the native county. Now, there are two questions in that. There's native county and the county in which connected. So if a person, say, from Galway, he could have another brother serving above in Mayo. So that's the second county. Is, that's where that applies. Now, when it comes down to the person recommending him, it said, if this was born in Galway, join the Mayo, you will find, and it's only recently I found out this, you won't find anybody recommending him in Galway, but wherever he went to join, you'll find the officer there, that, he, that the place where he joined, and not the place of his birth. That has torn some people, it's torn me for years, but now I got, eventually got to grips because the, that kind of pattern uh, is emerging. The religion is in it, if he... Some of them you see, there's a line to Protestant uh, taking the soup, become Catholic, nearly always to get married. Or what they call uh, a person who goes into, goes the other way around, they call them dippers, they go and dip into another religion. I'm only have to find that out too recently. Um, now, the wife's native county is in it, and invariably, when you look at the record, you'll find out that this guy gets married, it's just after seven years' service. It was a dismissible offence uh, not to report the marriage. And in the very early days, it was relaxed at the very end when they needed him. But a lot of guys were dismissed as a result of it. Or they're still writing bold and red all over the thing anyway, that, and this is the proper date that it was reported. Um, you get the wife's native county, who by recommended by a magistrate, a GAP, Protestant clergyman, clerk, clergyman. They're, they're usually, when they are local, uh, it, a sub-inspector would... Uh, a constabulary district at the time would take up about two or three parishes. So you're there or thereabouts to find out where the person is from. Um, his trade of calling, previous occupation. All the times you'll find ex-soldier uh, on it. And you'll also find um, previous occupations, even acrobats, believe it or not. They're, I'll just show you a list when it comes to them at the end. They're hilarious. And they're even funnier still, the reason that the excuse that they left to get, to get out. Um, the date of appointment and reappointment. When it's you'll find a lot of them would fail the medical examination and they would be reappointed, um, um, unfit, declared unfit by surgeon, but come here back a month later, stretch the height or something like that and go back in. Um, and the other ones who were reappointed are those who went off to the First World War. Uh, you'll find a list in the Irish Guards and enlisted on such a date. Names the regiment. And then you see him coming back in again. With the, um, if a person was forced out, say, or he wasn't able to get in the first time, with loss of service will be on it for pension purposes. But if a person comes back in with benefit of service, three years in RAC, four years in the Army, that'll all be, it made a huge difference to their pension. Uh, the counties to which they're allocated, unfortunately, it's only the county that's given on the service record. And funnily enough, there seems to be a county, I mean, whatever, 
to keep on putting down Drogheda uh, considered to be a county. Dates of promotions and reductions, and the reason for the reduction is also comes up in the fine part of it afterwards. Uh, marks of distinction, favourable records. Now, there was a reward system in the RIC, and at the very early days, you got what they call a chevron, and if you got three chevrons, the three chevrons, you, you get money at the end of your service uh, to buy back that chevron, or also, if you had three chevrons, you got the constabulary medal, the very early constabulary medals, and that's... Um, then there was a reward fund, and the RIC men have been fined right, left, and centre, and very substantial uh, fines, and the very early stages, 10 shillings, 10 shillings, 20 shillings, 30 shillings, and huge amounts altogether. But all that money was put back into the reward fund, and the reward fund paid the rewards out of that. So much so that it generated so much money that they had to publish what they call the half-yearly sheet. It started off as a half-yearly sheet, and... Uh, some of them have survived from 1848 up to 1882, but what, they, what it says is that why he was fined, usually drink-related, and even thinking about drinking early, you were fined. And there's so many different ways. You'd, it's a, a science in itself to find out all the different ways about drinking that are in it. And um, then there's the rewards for the chasing after runaway horses, all this type of stuff. But it, it, they balanced the books that way with it. Um, they, they eventually came a surplus through the force, but there, there's just some hilarious reading in it. And the beauty about it, having a unique sequential number, when you're looking at those records, you can pick your guy out straight away because the register number is on it. The rewards for the officers are very flowery altogether. You know, they're, they're really that he was uh, nearly at that store by the time he caught up with him and this type of thing, and he fought him off with two guns bare face and all this kind of stuff. But uh, something it happened. He was only looking for, for promotion later on. You'll see that he, when he goes for interview, he uses all those. Um, Unfavourable records, fines and admonitions, as I said, uh, they're well recorded, but the actual files relating to those do not exist. They were kept in the local county constabulary headquarters, do not exist. Um, the type of injury that the person got, uh, there's one man there I see got a bang over the head, and just looking at his file, Joseph Leddy, and um, in 1932 when he was a pensioner, uh, a TD, um, they had a a sparring match at the door anyway. It ended up the XRA, or the, the TD at the time, Reynolds, said to him that he was going to take his pension off him. And it got worse than that. He came out and shot the TD dead. And he shot the guard dead. And uh, the guard ended up on the uh, Roll of Honour. And that was 1932. And so, so you could show what feelings were even still at that time. And the same... I see him got a bang in the head on his file just I have in front of me here and just only got it the other day when I heard the story. But you know, there's reasons for everything and but it heated an argument and it he's the guard was not on the official monument, only uh, he's only been uh, recognised in the last few years. But again that's other things happening behind the scene. Uh, died that the probable cause if he left and if he resigned, why? Now the very end column says connected in county, C U N T D is on it. And that shows that if you had a that's for fear, a person could attempt to get back in. And that they knew as much information about him. Also shows that he could have a brother serving in another county that he definitely would not be serving there, or the home county, or the wife's county. So it limited his possibilities. Another thing, too, is the difference between the RIC leaving and coming back is that the DMP men, when they came back, were given a new number. The RIC men didn't. You were left out, but you resumed your old number. But what they did was they cut out your service for pension purposes. Now, all these fines, uh, if you see a fill on it, you guarantee they got a reduced pension, and it always happened. They affected your pension, and that's the way they used them afterwards. And in fact, when they came to be disbanded, there's what you see on the end of the record, TS, Treasury Sheet. There's these big sheets where they were all paid off. And you see some of them with markedly low pensions. And I saw, and all the guys were in the station, shows all the stations they were in. But... There's one I came across, and someone left a disciplinary file inside it, and this had two, two major fines, and his pension was lower than the others. And the disciplinary fine was, was threatening to strike the sergeant, and the second was striking the sergeant. <laughs> now, just there's a little bit more information on the officers. Uh, the surname, Christian name, the date they were appointed as an officer. Now, there was two methods of uh, joining the RIC. You either went in at the lower ranks as a sub-constable and went up through the ranks or you went in as an officer, as a cadet officer um, and if you went in at the lower ranks you were given a registered number and that registered number still stayed as an officer. 
So you can, in the record, you can distinguish who's a cadet because he doesn't have uh, a number. Um, the age that they were appointed, um, that would be appointed an officer, say, after 15 years service, he's 32 years of age. His native county, his religion, if married, the date of the marriage in the wife's native county, the date he was appointed to a constabulary district, any promotions, service in the army, navy, or other public situation. Uh, there would be a lot of them that were seconded for service in World War One. That's where that comes in, and gives you the regiment that they were in. Um, circumstances other than which he left the constabulary: injury, resignation, dismissal, discharge, pension amounts, uh, or an appointment to a foreign police force. Um, I'll just just bring you on to the the, the very interesting. Temporary constables or black and tans and temporary cadets in the Veterans Drivers Division. The first British recruit to the RIC during the Troubles was William Ford and his number 70014. Remember, they started number one on the 6th of January 1920, 23-year-old Gasford of Middlesex. A total of 7,464 British recruits. Now, why I call them British recruits rather than black and tans? They were still ordinary RIC men being recruited other than black and tans. The difference between the black and tan and the others is that the ordinary seaman, even though he's a British recruit, still got a pension at the end of the day. The black and tan was here, and he was on a renewable contract. The Augsies were, were the same. They were on a renewable contract. They were on a pound a day. The black and tans were on 10 shillings a day. And the Augsies won. And that was all found. And where were they going to spend it, the Augsies? They hardly go to the local pub. They made an absolute fortune here. So because the, the Augsies... Um, had a yearly contract, and when, by the time the truce came, just as the truce was coming, they saw the opportunity of things were going to go, they were, they were going to be heading out of the country. They renewed their contract just before the truce was signed, and they were paid up to July 1922. And some of them were, were in Palestine, had even gone off to Palestine to state, but they actually signed their disbandment terms were complete. There's a separate book on their disbandment terms to the ordinary RSA. And they made an absolute fortune here, and they couldn't spend it. So much so that they gave them their gratuity, so to speak, in different parts of England to collect it, rather than they having a party here just before they go. Uh, the temporary constable recruited, this is the first black and tan, was Christopher Tyndall, 72754, uh, on the 3rd of September 1920, 40-year-old ex-soldier. You can see all the rules are broken. He's no longer 19. They're trained. They're ex-soldiers. Uh, but he's from Kildare. 10% of the black and tans are Irish and roughly 10% of the auxiliaries are Irish. And a lot of those were those who were out of work in England and found a way of getting back home. And you can distinguish the Tans from the British recruits because the, the others are going through the ordinary process. With the Tans on the records, you won't see where they ended up on their record. They were just on contract and they could be moved overnight. And they were sent off uh, from the, their central station in what they call drafts. And that's all explained by uh, a black and tan who's written, written um, Douglas Valder Duff, uh, believe it or not, who is Sir Roger Caseman's godchild. He was a black and tan here. Um, a total of 2,183 temporary council black and tans recruited between. Into, you had the RSE Veterans and Drivers Division. Now, for example, Kilmichael, it says so many auxiliaries were killed. One of them was a temporary council because some of the black and tans they had to have drivers, and the officers weren't doing the driving. So any time the auxiliaries came out, that's why all the confusion is. But where you started on the papers is, and you see how wrong the papers, the papers are completely up in a heap. They didn't know who's who at the time. But when you, when you know who's on the list and you know the name, you know whether he's a tan by, literally by the money that they got, and you can distinguish them. And that's why all those Kid and Kill Michael were not auxiliaries. One, one was a, a tan. Another thing, I f a very interesting thing I found out was that the drivers, most of the drivers were Irish. And the reason being because they knew where they were going. And they recruited them locally, which is even more of a danger in itself. Uh, and uh, it makes an awful lot of sense, it's only the practical side of it, but they're hidden in the numbers. Um, first temporary cadet recruit was Harold Pearson. Um, and they had an auxiliary number. Their records are separate too, and it gives you the regiment uh, that they were in. And a total of 2,000. 263 temporary cadets <coughs> went into the RSE Veterans Division. Yeah. Um, now, just looked at the Auxiliary Division. Uh, it was recruited from ex-officers who served in the Great War. Each cadet signed a form of engagement and joined the force. The effect of his contract was that the cadet was bound to serve for six months and without further engagement could at his option serve for a further six months. 
but on giving a month's notice was entitled to resign uh, during six months of his first engagement. A lot of them signed up for the 12 months straight away, but they were cute enough to when they saw it. Now, it suited the government at the time because they weren't going to retraining and starting off looking for officers all over England again. So, um, and this is the form, that the, the, this is the conditions, guaranteed appointment for 12 months, a pound uh, per day, um, increased to one guinea a day, a uniform to the RC supplied free, service dress officers could be worn without badges of rank, uh, duty consistent training cooperating with police and patrol and defence work, uh, preferential selections for permanent cadets from the RIC, they, if they were going to cadets come up to for shadows, and grades of discipline, disability pension allowances, same as ranks of sergeant. Now the first ones that were allocated in Dublin here, the head, biggest bush was their headquarters, and if you read the papers of the time, they're called sergeants. And you see they're rounding up uh, IRA around the Dublin mountains and that type of thing. And they're, they're acting on intelligence. They had great intelligence when they started, but they found themselves within months, all that intelligence, when the IRA copped down what was going on, that all dried up. So the auxiliaries go off on their own, and they have what they call defensive barrack sergeants with them. They got all these fortified buildings around the country, and they occupy those. They're all nearly in castles. McCroom Castle being one of several castles. I've just a presentation on, on all the castles that they were in, and they form what they call companies. And the only logic we'll explain in a book to anybody will be just when I, I'm almost there is that just show the companies that were formed and when the companies, when they go from one place to the other because they're swapping between all over the place. And eventually you can uh, pin down who did, who did who to what. That's for another day for somebody else to find out, but I'm anxious just trying to get... If you get the names right, everybody has a name. It's like uh, with all these commemorations coming up, I'm anxious to know who exactly was in the GPO. And it's the same with the times. Everybody wants to know who did what, but things like that. Um, this is an application form they would have filled up. Now, this thing about auxiliaries and, and tans all being left out of jails in England, I've yet to find any record of it. But I have found RIC men, black and tans, auxiliaries, afterwards in the records, losing their pensions on account of being convicted of some crime, even five and six years onwards. Um, and just the form that would have been complete, the name of the unit, the regiment they were in before, their age, height, physical defect, military record. There was a background check done on them with the War Department and at very short notice, and I'll just come to one there shortly. The date they enlisted in the service, any decorations mentioned, uh, the rank on their discharge, occupation prior to enlistment, and they certified that. Now, all this must go to Major Fleming, the recruiting officer in Great Scotland Yard. And Major Fleming was uh, a major in the Irish Guards who served as a county inspector in the RIC. His grandfather was Th uh, Thomas Fleming, who set up the Phoenix Park Depot, the first officer in the depot, and his son was an officer. So there was a tradition from 1842 up to 1922 to one for setting up the depot, so the last guy bringing in the towns. And it went to him. And um, just to look at some of the Irish, out of a total of 2,263 of the Oxys, I've identified so far 126 out of 1,427 uh, were Irish. And when you see all these fancy countries like Arabia and all that, you'll find that, that their sons are British Army officers serving in all those countries and not necessarily being... Um, and then of that 126, uh, Dublin comes first on the list. It's, it's like the Song Contest and Antrim, Belfast, populated areas. So. And... No, um, the Oxys were completely cocky in what they were doing. They were here on huge money. They were occupying castles. They were drinking and allowing to themselves. And then even so much so that their rank structure, that they, that they, even, they had a drink called after every rank. They, they called the Colonel Steady Drink, Economy Bendy Adjutant. Hasty but good, the platoon commander. And every man's drink, next guy. They published a book when they were here, a magazine, at gunpoint down in, in Limerick. And it's called the Bog Trotter. And some of this type of information kind of coming out of it. Short to suit the quartermaster. Uh, Full-bodied and good. G Company, rec not recommended for rebels. Um, this recruiting officer's complete list of recruiting officers where they were recruited in England. And what would be a fantastic study to see what happened to these guys before and after. And majority, but the majority were recruited in Scotland Yard. And, um, and Major Fleming was the guy recruiting them. Now, the Phoenix Park Depot, as I said, was set up in 1842, and again, it was the only cadet train police force in the world, so the, the RIC were responsible for setting up 
uh, every single police force in the colonies and those who were set up had to do a period of training, the officers, so, and they wore their uniforms, distinctive uh, foreign police uniforms in Dublin going to court, learning the court system here. Uh, that's a snuff box uh, that was passed around the depot, a snow on Prince Philip's desk, I'm told, um, that the PSNI had in, in their place. And But it's, it goes back to the time of Waterloo, and that's, that was in the depot. Inscription. Um, some of the officers. Uh, just the depot staff, it's a huge organisation, and that's the amount of different rank structures. So if you find, if you have an ancestor with any of those other terms on it, um, they were connected to the depot. Um, now, you will not find the black and tan before 72096 on the, this is when the, this and with the Inspector General's order will be on their service record as distinct from the guy going before the local uh, district inspector, or recommended by the local district, Inspector General's order will be on it, and the date after will be 23rd of July 1920. And then with the officers, some of the officers tend to confuse the situation more. Some auxiliaries that came in became cadets in the RIC, and some RIC officers went off with the auxiliaries. So that'll tell you what confusion, and the job, the papers even had to keep up with them. Um, this is Thomas Fleming, the grandfather of um, uh, Major Fleming, and he, again, he's buried in Mount Jerome, along the same rows, briefly, and all the others. And uh, he, he ran away to, and joined the army, and this is his son, and that's Thomas Fleming there, or the Silphant, this guy who brought in the Black Times recruit him in London. That's him at the RDS. That's him there on the right hand side um, in London with some of the recruits. And that's one of the, how I came across that was that someone was selling a set of medals, and it also had the War, Rec, War Office inquiry to check if any background problems. And that was done in all of them. Uh, this is one of the first head constables that was in the depot. And uh, just holding up that. No, just the various obstacles of it to, to the RSC that came across was obviously the rising of 1848. And that's uh, now a national monument. And for anybody who had any RSC connection with that, who came under fire, there is actually a complete um, list of all those who came under fire and exactly what compensation they got. And I gave to people setting up that and it's actually have it displayed on the wall. Every fellow came under fire in that house. Um, they, they were, the RAC were uh, surrounded and kept inside in it. And one, one officer, the officer who had relieved him, got the constabulary medal for bravery, and the fellow who was relieved also got the medal. And there was a big argument with them in the papers after who should have got the first one and all this type of thing. But things haven't changed. And that's Trent, Cox and Trent. And... <coughs> that came from one of the Young Irelanders' uh, trials at the time. The, someone sketched, that ended up in the States, sketched everybody who was, uh, who was at the trial at the time. Everyone bared the judge and the two officers were sketched. Um, the Irish Constabulary and the London Metropolitan Police then uh, set up the Mounted Staff Corps, who become the military police, the, the forerunners of the military police, to... Uh, go off to the Crimea, and they wore, that's where the scarlet uniform comes from. You can see that's some of the bright uniforms in the Crimea. Um, the Phoenix, Phoenix Park then had the uh, mounted troop, and you can see the man with his hands folded there near the centre. Uh, he survived the charge of the Light Brigade. He's the guy afterwards who sets up the mounted troop in Phoenix Park. And that's, he's again, he's in that photograph. And John Duffy, the former curator of the Garden Museum. That's him standing on his grave there above in Glasnevin. We found it there some years ago, unmarked. Um, now, the station badge from 1867 on has Royal Irish Constabulary and just the Victorian crown up to 1900. And after 1900, it has the Edwardian crown from 1900 up to 1922. And the badging, the cap badges, the collar badges, all change with the, the crown changes. So that's And this little pillbox cap, that was always the one before 1900, the peak cap came in after 1900. Um, this is the firing party in Talla, Dominic Burke, he got the Constabulary Medal too for suppressing the rising there, and he's the gentleman on the right with the sideburns. And 
that's, that's him there later on. In fact, this is a photograph that was in the PS9 Museum or the IUC Museum for ages, and they were trying to identify it, and the sideburns again. And that's him in 1897. And he's a patch over the eye. One of the, um, he's one of Cusack's, as the minister mentioned earlier on today, one of Cusack's students, Thomas St. George McCarthy, who was buried in the Papa's grave out in Dean's Grange. And for the centenary of the GA, we got his grave marked. That's, that's what was there before it. And that's the Garda Commissioner and Representative from North and the President of the GA, Martin's Grave. Um, he played rugby for Ireland and never got a cap, the most unlucky man I've ever come across. Um, and that's the icing. This is the very first guard, again the guard numbers, they're up to I think number 35,000 at the moment. But he's an extraordinary, extraordinary character. And guard number two did everything right, kept his head down, his mouth shut, got promoted everything right, but guard number two did everything wrong. Um, he, when I came across him, uh, I was walking inside in Cork City and a person said to me, there's a fellow above in the nursing home, he said, his father was the first guard, and uh, I said, it's a tall order, what was his name? So I checked the register and it was Patrick Joseph Kerrigan. Um, and so I called up to him and he showed me this photograph. He's in Irish guard uniform in World War I. And I said, what happened to your father? I don't know, I said. I said, Where's, where is he? Where's, when did he die? He said, he died in the 40s, somewhere in New York. He says, like that. I've cousins over there. And um, so I went from there anyway, and he told me that he'd been in the RIC, been Irish Guards, he was also in the Irish Army, and he was in the Dublin Metropolitan Police. So then he told me that his father had skipped and took off, went off to America, and had a second family in the States. So he showed me another photograph with uh, himself, with uh, a son of the other family in the States, with a sister who would come home looking, trying to trace his relatives. And he said, for that photograph to be taken was amazing, because my sister never got photographed with anybody. So, by coincidence, the son of the Garda was in the nursing home, had a daughter living in California, and who was married to a Mexican, so the great-grandchildren, the first Garda, half Mexican triplets. And they weren't baptised at the time, so he was going to go for the baptism. So he said, how will we track down them in the States? Lucky enough, I knew someone who had a telephone, a complete list of telephone numbers in New York State. And he had an address, Rosemary Circle, in Albany. He, uh, I got the number anyway, and he dialed it, and he got to a cousin. And he, we got a forwarding address for the son, his half-brother, in California. So he said, what will I do? So I said, send a letter and get him in contact with your sister in California. Did that anyway. Now, the letter arrived at the sorting office. And someone in the sorting office knew that this guy was playing golf next Sunday, thinking it was him. And he gave him the letter. And he was living 15 minutes away from the man's daughter. So the two of them went over. Uh, the two of them met up at the christening. Photograph for the first time. They're absolutely nearly identical twins at this day. And um, but a funny thing afterward, the story here was that guard number one's son and guard number two's son used to meet above in Drogheda. And guard number two was going, son was going cocky as hell, and my father's the most senior guard, but all your man used to was he can never be number one. And uh, but they met up, and uh, I found his grave and I put a cap edge on it. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. This is uh, Podrick Pierce's house, um, and the annex to the side is a snooker room. The reason being the district or the Inspector General of the RIC, um, Colonel Neville Chamberlain, founded the game of snooker, and that's the reason it was built on. He was living that. He's actually signed the census in 1901. And he's the Inspector General of the RIC. Um, just another side, just two revolvers that Custer had with him, or two RIC revolvers. Someone told me when I told him about that, they said he'd be better off he'd a pair of runners. <laughs> Uh, there's a connection with the RIC and Napoleon Bonaparte. Bram Stoker, the Garda Museum will be moving into Dublin, a different person, Dublin Castle, where actually Bram Stoker worked, and his uh, maternal grandfather was an RIC man. There's also a connection to Oscar Wilde. This is some RIC man who up in Toronto in Canada. Uh, I spoke to Peter Jennings years ago, his ancestors in the RIC, Amanda Sullivan's in the RIC, Sir Henry Arthur Blake, Governor of Newfoundland, and if you have any Chinese money at the moment, or the outside the Hong Kong flag, there's a flower called after him, Bohinia Blakeyana. He's buried below in Cove, under, or buried in Yall, under four yew trees planted by Sir Walter Raleigh. That's the famous Listowel Mutiny where the RIC threw off the tunic. That's one of the recruits who went on to become a bishop. Douglas Hyde's brother was an RIC man. Francis McCoppin was mayor of San Francisco. 
and these were the tans. William Hill, the bookmaker, was a black and tan in Mallow. Stanley Holloway was a black and tan here. And finally, this is Tyne O'Mahony. He was manager of the Irish Times, lost a leg, a printing press fell in it. He fought in World War I. And this is his son, Dave Allen. Now, he, he had sought, I know where he gets his humour because he went as to a fancy dress party with one leg dressed as a toffee apple. <laughs> and just, I'll, I'll wrap up on this last guy. He's the most extraordinary character I've come across, Douglas Valderduff. He's Sir Roger Casement's godchild. Just only for starters. He, he was shipwrecked in World War I, the only survivor. The other body was taken to France. He was interrogated at the time, thought they were up to something. Uh, that's where the ship is at the moment. You actually go on the internet and find the ship. This is the grave of the other body that was found in it. That's commemoration in London to all those killed. This is his father with him. Uh, he missed his father's funeral, but the father only wanted to be buried at sea. So he got the father cremated. Uh, he made this little boat with an engine on it. So sent it up to Thames with a bomb it and blew up the father. So. Um, this is... When he's in Galway, he talks about Lord Ha Ha throwing, throwing him overboard above in uh, Galway. He also gives an account of going to risk Michael Collins in Dublin. Um, and this is him uh, as second commander of the, the Palestine Police in Jerusalem. He saved the life of uh, the last president, of, and he has all, and all the family has all the correspondence to match of Italy. He also saved Haile Selassie's life and his assassination attempt on him. He became a spy. He's like in World War II, and he ends up like Captain Birdseye. <laughs>